Welcome back to the OPEX podcast. On today's episode, I am rejoined by Patrick McCown from the Buteycoclinic.com and from the OxygenAdvantage.com. I wanted to get Patrick back on the show to discuss some of the topics he covers in his book, The Oxygen Advantage. Guys, this was another outstanding episode with Patrick, and I hope you really, really enjoy. Patrick McCann, you absolute legend. I can't believe I'm, we're already online like half an hour and we have one to start recording now. So <laughs> I apologize and I really appreciate your patience putting up with all my jibba-jabba as I say. But before we get going here, you have been doing a savage amount of traveling. Like I, I honestly cannot believe the amount of work you were, you were putting yourself through. And obviously, it's because it's your vocation and you obviously love what you do. And, I'll, and just from what you told me there before you hopped online, 2020 is jam-packed as well. So... Just for mm-hmm. the listeners, I mean, everyone's well aware who you are. You've been on the OPEX podcast before. But just fill us in on how 2019 has gone and tell us about 2020. And I suppose just tell us about, you know, what's the vision now going forward to with uh, Auction Advantage and the Buteco method. 2019, an interesting year. It was very busy. Um, the travel, I'm not sure if I can sustain it indefinitely the way it's going at the moment. Uh, 2019 was completely bucked up. Um, even you know today is date twenty second of November of a trip. I came in from Hungary last week last weekend. Go to Poland in a few days. Come back from that. Go to LA. Come back from that, and then I've got twenty five trips for twenty twenty. So, in some ways, it's brilliant, and then in other ways, it's there's a limitation to it because you've only got so much time. I want to try and strive for a balance that I can enjoy the work and that I can improve with it as well. But if I'm constantly on the go, all of your time and effort, as, as we spoke about just a while ago, all of our time and effort is focused on the, on the doing. And we are not able to put the time aside then to improve. So I think it's that balance and that's what I need to sort out. But it, I suppose in some ways it, it's at a crossroads. It was taking so many years to grow. And the last three, four years, it's, it's driven up you know, exponentially. And now it's managing it at this stage as well. So I think it'll all fall into place. I'm writing two books at the moment. One is specifically on the mind. And the second one then is looking at the oxygen advantage primarily for health. Um, looking at the likes of the relationship between breathing and type 1 diabetes. And there's a huge connection there. High blood pressure, stimulating the baroreceptors, helping to restore normal autonomic functioning. So to move away from sports a little bit, in terms of bringing the oxygen advantage into overall health. And you could say, well, why aren't I doing it with the Buteyko method? The Buteyko method looks at breathing from a biochemical point of view primarily. But even though the Buteyko method is absolutely brilliant, there's more to breathing than just biochemistry. We need to also consider the biomechanics and we also need to consider the cadence of breathing. So with oxygen advantage, it's just given me a little bit more freedom in my mind that I can bring anything into it that I think that's going to make a difference. Um, so we can create a program around the oxygen advantage that's looking at all pillars of breathing. So, because I, I think, Robbie, this is what's been missed. You know, if you go to a yoga studio, the yoga instructor will concentrate generally on the biomechanics, but will sacrifice the biochemistry and won't necessarily look at cadence. Buteyko, we were concentrating primarily on biochemistry. But we weren't necessarily concentrating on the biomechanics. We weren't concentrating on cadence. 
a heart math practitioner or heart rate variability is concentrating on the cadence of breathing. And the other thing is, it's not just about the breathing when you're in the yoga studio or the breathing when you're in the Pilates studio. It's about everyday breathing. It's about breathing 24-7. Yeah, great stuff. So since our first conversation, I went down to the library and I was like, hey, librarian, I need this book, Oxygen Vantage by this guy McKeon. It's unreal. Get it for I me. hope it lived up to your expectations. Oh, it absolutely did, because there's plenty of stuff in here that... Uh, you know, and, and I read it there, it was actually September now I got through it and I still have it here. Um, and it, was, it, it, uh, it put many questions into my head that I really want to get your thoughts on. First uh, thing I want to talk to you about, actually, just it's even before I ask you about the ball score, just in regards to uh, sleeping positions. That was one thing in the book. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, actually, it's funny because you would often hear people say, don't sleep on your belly. And I think that's more so because people say, you know, twisting your neck. But you were saying from an actual nasal breathing standpoint that actually could be a good position for some people in terms of helping them with their breathing. So just in terms of sleeping positions um, between prone, supine, and sideline, you don't recommend a supine position because the tongue falls back. Um, I I personally found, though, just for myself while I'm transitioning to nasal breathing as I sleep, if I prop myself up a little bit, so I'm a little bit inclined, but I'd still be supine, um, that's one of my better ways for me to keep my nasal breathing as i sleep um but just touch just touch on that patrick if you will just uh, position sleeping positions and, and nasal breathing for people maybe who are just getting into you know nasal breathing transition from yeah, to nasal. i'm not so sure about the front either um okay. you know that the front could create problems with posture and i'm not so sure about specifically sleeping on the left hand side continuously either because when i look at my own face it's got flatter on the left than it is on the right and that's after 20 years of sleeping on the left hand side and even it's affected my nose because pressure exer- pressure ex- exerted against the face is going to change the face mm. so if you're sleeping continuously on one side i think it's very normal that we're going to switch positions yeah. but i would tend to probably advocate now a switching from the left to the right and vice versa I don't think the back is a good position, especially if one is prone to sleep disorder breathing. Okay. We know that 50% of people with obstructive sleep apnea, their apnea is double when they sleep in their back. Mm. Now, many of these individuals may be prescribed a CPAP machine on the basis of having a very high severity of sleep apnea. And if those individuals were put onto their sides, their apneas could half. So, wow. yeah, you know, you don't want your lower jaw falling into the airway. You don't want your tongue falling into the airway. You need to maximize airway space. Mm. And maximizing airway space is about getting the tongue out of the throat. Mm, very, very good. Okay, so let's get into the bolt score for people. So blood oxygen level tests, because um, we didn't really get into that specifically in our first conversation. Yeah. Um, but in the book, you outlaid very well. And... <laughs> so funny you know because when you're reading about the the bolts test you're like oh god i hope i'm towards 40 seconds and then when you try it you're like can't even do eight seconds here you're disappointed yeah oh god i was i was devastated i was like yeah to be honest (laughs) i I had low expectations anyway because i knew i know i'm a chronic mouth reader um but talk us through the ball scores the 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 time durations and what that may may mean for a certain individual and then maybe if you want to get into the specific prescriptions you would give for someone who's between like 0 10 10 20 20 30 and 40 onwards if you look at people with breathing pattern disorders the bowl score is a measurement of your chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup 
in very simple terms, carbon dioxide is the stimulus to breathe. So if you stop breathing, at some point, the brain is going to send a message to breathe based on the body's sensitivity to the buildup of CO2. So you can imagine that a person takes a normal breath in, normal breath out, they pinch their nose, they hold their nose. As they hold their breath, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood because it's coming from the cells. And the measurement, it's a measurement of how long does it take before the brain reacts to the buildup of CO2. If the brain reacts quite soon, the individual has a strong sensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. And if one has a strong sensitivity to CO2 buildup, their breathing is going to be hard. Their breathing is going to be more intense. The respiratory rate is going to be faster and their breathing is generally more upper chest. So for sports and also at rest, it's a measurement of dyspnea, breathlessness. So primarily it's a measurement of, you know, the degree of volume of breathing that one would require for a given intensity and duration of physical exercise. And the BOLT score has been written about since 1975 up to as recent as 2018, 2018, uh, one researcher, Trambach. And the interesting thing about the BOLT score, the breath hold after an exhalation under the voluntary movement of the breathing muscles, there's an inverse relationship with that and the sensitivity of the baroreceptors, the pressure receptors in the blood vessels. Individuals with a low sensitivity of the baroreceptors, in other words, the baroreceptors aren't responding very well to the environment around us, or as a marker of resilience. Individuals with low sensitivity of the baroreceptors have a high chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, and that can be measured by low both score. So there seems to be an interplay between the change to the baroreceptors and how that can modify sensitivity to carbon dioxide. But we also have to other, ask the other question, would an individual with a high BOLT score, does that also show that they have a strong sensitivity of the baroreceptors and with that, good functioning of the autonomic nervous system? So I think there's more to the BOLT score than we think. And I know there was one paper published in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. They looked at breathing from a biochemistry point of view, looking at carbon dioxide. From a biomechanical point of view, if the individual is breathing high or low, and also from a psychophysiological point of view, using a questionnaire called an Imagen questionnaire. But they found there was no correlation between the three. And they found that an easy way to screen for breathing pattern disorders was breath hold time. And they also brought in four questions from the functional movement screen. And the four questions were, do you feel tense during the day? Do you yawn? Do you wake up? At a, do you yawn quite frequently? Do you wake up at a dry mouth? And do you have cold hands? And these, again, will be symptoms of chronic hyperventilation. So I think the breath hold time is pretty good, Robbie. It's not perfect. All you need is a watch. And the main thing is that, you know, you take a normal breath in, normal breath out, you pinch your nose, you hold your nose, and you time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary uh, movement of the breathing muscles. And if we think of the cohort of individuals prone to breathing pattern disorders, it's estimated from one study, a Cochrane review, that it's about 9.5% of the Western population. I would say it's higher. But in asthma, it's 30%. And in anxiety, it's as high as 80%. And in somatic populations, it's 50%. So if you think of an individual, if they were prone to asthma as a child, they will generally 
be more um, prone to breathing pattern disorders or if they have asthma now, if they're prone to anxiety, panic disorder, high stress, etc. So I think, you know, certain populations, certain sectors of the populations have to pay more attention to their breathing than others. You had a lecture on your YouTube channel about anxiety and you were saying that a recent paper had come out linking, I think, the sensitivity of the baroreceptors to an area in the brain. Now, I think it was called the, lo the, the locus, the locus corallus. corallus. Yeah, the locus yeah corallus. so this, is, this was a Stanford research. If, if you were to Google Stanford Medical School and slow breathing, um, you'll see that researchers, they first identified it in mice and it wasn't related necessarily to the functioning of the baroreceptors, but they found that there's a new structure in the brain, or at least they identified the new structure in the brain. And they said that the function of this new structure that they have identified is that it spies on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, this structure will relate vibration to the rest of the brain. And if you breathe slowly, this structure will relay signal of calm to the rest of the brain. Now, most people will say, well, a person with anxiety, yes, they tend to breathe fast upper chest. That's generally what we see. You could argue that it's anxiety that's causing the fast upper chest breathing. But you can also argue that the fast upper chest breathing is feeding into the anxiety. How can people have a calm mind if their body is in a state of fight or flight and fast upper chest breathing is fight or flight and mouth breathing is going to contribute to that? So I would say that all mouth breathers are in a state of stress to some degree. When I initially started to nasal breathe more, I was getting a lot of leakage from my nose. And you were saying that's, yes. quite, you were saying that's quite common. It's so normal. Could you just maybe for the listeners address why that would be? And also to, you probably commonly get this question. And it was something that Dave Asprey actually had said to you when you did a podcast on his, um, on his show, was that a lot of individuals now turn around and say, well, I can't breathe my nose because it's always blocked. You know, yes. so can you just address those two questions of, so what do you do with someone whose nose is always blocked? And then why then, once it be, starts to become unblocked, why does it drip so much? Like m Mine really drips like when I, when I breach my nose. Okay, well, the first one, to decongest the nose, you can decongest your nose by holding your breath. And this exercise is suitable for people who have relatively normal health. Uh, the female shouldn't be pregnant. Uh, you shouldn't have cardiovascular issues. But if you want to open up your nose, Take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose. You pinch your nose, hold your nose, and walk about while you hold your breath. Or you could gently nod your head up and down holding your breath. So you can gently nod your head up and down as you hold your breath, and you keep going until you have a fairly strong air hunger, and then you let go, but you breathe in through your nose. So when, when an individual holds their breath, uh, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood, nitric oxide pools inside the nasal cavity, but it also activates a sympathetic response. So it could be any one of those three or other, function, other mechanisms which are helping to open up the nose. And then you repeat it after about a minute. You take a normal breath in, normal breath out, you pinch the nose, you hold the nose, and you gently nod your head, and you keep going, Robbie, keep going, keep holding your breath for as long as possible, keep going until it's very difficult. When it gets pretty tough, let go but breathe in through your nose. And uh, if you wait a minute and do it again, and if you do that five or six times, the nose opens up temporarily. Now, as the bowl score increases to about 20 to 25 seconds, 
the nose is more permanently decongested. So this exercise will temporarily decongest your nose as long as the bolt score is less than 25 seconds. But the bolt score is seconds, the nose is more permanently decongested. Um, this is not new information. It's been written about since 1923 that you can decongest the nose by simply holding of the breath. How does it work? We don't know. Uh, we thought originally it was carbon dioxide. It may still be, but ENTs, ear, nose, and throat doctors don't always agree with that theory. And ear, nose, and throat doctors are not, most of them won't be familiar with it. I gave a talk in Madrid to 150 ENTs in January of this year. And I made a comment to them. I told them, I had an operation on my nose in 1994 after years of chronic rhinosinusitis, chronic rhinitis issues. And I said, you fixed my nose, but you never told me to breathe through it. Now, that happens with the thousands of operations that ENTs are doing for the nose. There's no point in fixing the nose with surgery unless the individual is breathing through it afterwards. But mouth breathing is a behavior. So mouth breathing, it can be as a result of habit, but it can also you know, be as a result of obstruction. So even when the obstruction is removed, the behavior too has to be changed. And this is not happening in the field of medicine. Just to give you a statistic, children, the, the gold standard of treatment for kids with sleep disorder breathing, which may include snoring or obstructive sleep apnea, the gold standard is removal of adenoids and removal of tonsils. The first time the efficacy of this approach was investigated was in 2010, David Gazal's paper, and they were disappointed with the results. They looked at 500 children, and only 150 of those children had a complete solution, completely resolved their obstructive sleep apnea. Now, you think of the thousands of kids today that are going in under the knife, under general anesthetic, three, four, or five, or six years of age. Um, and, you know, it's really dreadful because oft, too often, how many times have I heard it coming from people? you know, you're teaching breathing exercises. We need evidence-based medicine. Well, there's no side effects from teaching somebody to breathe through the nose. Yeah, granted, your nose may run a little bit in the transition period, but it's a very natural thing to do what we are teaching. And any physiology, any physiolo physiology in a textbook, a medical textbook, will describe that the nose performs a number of functions in the human body. But yes, adenoids and tonsils being removed from kids without fully examining the efficacy of it. It's mind-blowing. And this is what I'm going to include in the new book because the tonsils and the adenoids are a problem. Well, the adenoids are a problem when the airway is too small. So you could ask, is, is it the adenoid that's the problem or is it the size of the airway? And if it's the size of the airway, well, then it's not an ENT, but it's a functional dentist because we need the child to breathe through the nose to direct the growth of the face. And here's a couple of statistics. Children who have their adenoids removed, they have a 67% chance of relapse in sleep disorder breathing within two years unless nasal breathing is restored. These kids are not being taught nasal breathing. They're having surgery, but no follow-up with the nose breathing. Did your daughter have that operation? She did. And if I was to do it again, I wouldn't do it. 
Um, absolutely no way. I took the best of advice at the time six years ago. I, she has got facial structures like mine. She has a very high palate. Um, she was born that way. She's also got teutogenesis, so she's congenitally missing two teeth, which would indicate that she's got a small jaw. And somebody with a small jaw, they don't have enough room for the tongue in the roof of the mouth. Um, so I was noticing, especially if she had a head cold, I would notice that she would stop breathing during sleep. And, okay, I knew straight away, well, this is a sign. This is not a sign. This is obstructive sleep apnea. So I made an appointment with our local ENT, and I said I want a tongue tie done. I want a lip tie done. I want the adenoids out and I want the tonsils out. So I did all four procedures in one. It was absolutely traumatic. And you see her coming back in on the trolley afterwards. You know, if I was to do it again, I'd probably still go ahead with the tongue tie and lip tie. It's minimally invasive and it can make quite a difference. But I would have brought her to a functional dentist. Now here's the problem. In Ireland, there's two dentists in the whole country, maybe three that know about functionality. So time, you're traveling three, four hours for an appointment and it's not possible. So I bring her to my local dentist, orthodontist here in Galway, and I get the, the normal spiel. Oh, she's too young. We can't do anything with her. Wait until she's about 12 or 13 years of age and then come back. Well, the problem is she will have grown because the growth of the face, 90% of the growth of the face is achieved by 12 years of age. And Orthodontics shouldn't be just about straightening teeth. It's about development of the face and importantly, development of the airway. So when you think of somebody who's having their mouth open for a few years during childhood, the face grows in length, the nose is crooked because the maxilla, the top jaw, isn't far forward enough. Mm -hmm. We need forward growth of the lower 50% of the face so that there's plenty of room for the tongue. Because the tongue has two places to be. It's either in the roof of the mouth or it's falling into the airway. And if we have a narrow airway as a result of mouth breathing during childhood or combination of genetics and, you know, the environment and mouth breathing, etc., these children have a high risk of obstructive sleep apnea, not just during childhood, but for the rest of their life. Now, this is a car crash waiting to happen. And the dental industry have been asleep at the wheel. The dentists are in a great position to be the fathers of sleep medicine because they are looking into children's mouths on a regular basis. They can assess for the high risk factors, including narrowing of the maxilla, mandible which is set back, poor development of the growth of the face, high upper palate, and teutogenesis. But yet, the dental industry, because we have professors who are stuck in universities, they're up in this house in the sky and they're not in contact with real life and at the same time they've been debating mouth breathing in childhood since 1909 if you look at a journal called the dental cosmos which was around 1909 dentists and the dental industry have been debating this is it relevant to dentistry absolutely it is we need somebody to wake up and start taking responsibility for the health of these children and adults and breathing is a no-no when it comes to sleep. It's uh, it's funny when you men mentioned uh, dental cosmos because you mentioned that in our first episode, and I, I went and <laughs> I, I went like I googled it and found the website, and it was just like 
like it's just a library of all these dental um like articles that just go back yeah. into the 19th century and then I, yes. I i just i just like it there's a search bar and you just type in mouth breathing and it's just thousands of papers and yeah. they're all like you know some of them are written in kind of old school english but they're just like talking about like how detrimental mouth breathing is to the immune yeah. system and like just like everything Robbie, it's talking crazy about, yeah, like every crazy. It's funny now because anytime I'm out walking, like, like I actually, to be honest, since since our podcast, like I throughout the day, I'm very good at breathing through my nose. It's it's habit now. Like, I, like I even catch myself going, oh, my tongue's on top of my mouth and breathing through my nose. So I'm always breathing through my nostrils when I'm going about my daily, just my my day, I suppose. But it's funny when I'm out walking too, and I'm walking around town here in Dublin just the the awareness you've given me of i'm like oh my god like mouth breather mouth breather mouth breather mouth. i was just like i was just like looking at everyone i was like i used to be that yeah. like mouth, just everyone breathing through their mouth like it's just like yeah it, yeah it's epidemic so it is and i yeah. i it's, always it's crazy. think i always think about the the village idiot that's all comes to my head when i think about music well google mouth breather yeah. and it comes back as a stupid person and the reason being i think traditionally the only kids who are breathing through the mouth in pre in past times were children who were mentally retarded mm. i think that's reason why so society has looked upon mouth breeders as as poor kids that don't have the intelligence that they are they are mentally deficient that they don't have good intellectual capacity functioning etc but now the problem is if a child snores by the age of eight and is untreated just snoring there is an 80% chance that that child will have a permanent 20% reduction to their mental capacity. So if you think of that statistic, 80% chance that they will have a 20% 20 20 reduction to their mental capacity permanently. Uh, there was a great study carried out by Karen Bonick, B-O-N-U-C-K, in Stratford-upon-Avon in London, or in Stratford-upon-Avon in England. They looked at 11,000 children and they, they identified risk factors during childhood in the first few months, say six months, 12 months, 18 months, I think 50 months or whatever. And from that, they were able to derive the risk of children who have sleep disorder breathing and mouth breathing. They have a 40% increased risk of learning difficulties, special education needs. Now we're talking about kids with, you see it in Ireland, autism. Learning difficulties, special education needs. We have to look at sleep. And when we look at sleep, we need to look at breathing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about kids, Robbie. How can any person who's wanting to be at the top of their game, who's wanting to function normally in everyday life, how can you be at the top of your game if you don't have good sleep? Yeah. The two things that are hot at the moment, sleep and breathing. Come here, just as well, the second part of that initial question too, the nasal drip, what, what is the reason for that? Is it just, is it nitric, is it um, nitric oxide? Is it, you know, dilation? It's, just, it's a symptom, it's a symptom of rhinitis. We would expect it to clear when bowl score increases. Okay. There seems to be irritant receptors in the nose. Now, it can be very normal for the nose to run on a cold day. Mm. And if you're passing a larger volume of air through the nose, it may be irritating the nose, and as a result, it's causing mucus there. Post-nasal drip is mucus running down the back of the nose. Yeah. So what I would do is build up the bolt score, but also rinse out the nasal cavity with saline and water. So get grey Celtic sea salt. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually very pleasant. You get a, a glass, glass of boiled water allowed to cool, 
mm. and get gray Celtic sea salt, very unrefined. Sorry, it's not refined. It's not processed sea salt. And just put the sea salt into the glass of water. Hold your nose. Pour the water into the palm of your hand. Hold one nostril and snort the water up into the nasal cavity. But you want the water going right down the back of the nose, clearing mm. out everything. Because mouth breeders are also, they're also prone to bad breath, to halitosis. Yeah. And it's probably because the mouth, because of mouth breed, the airway is compromised to the clearing of mucus. And as a result, now there's stagnation and stagnation of mucus could be causing bad breath. So this is where the sea salt rinse can come in because it's not, not enough just to do a netty pot that it's coming in one or I'm right down the back of the nasal cavity, down the throat, hawk it, spit it out, do it a few times each nostril and clean out the nasal cavity, as well as using the nose and taping the lips at night. Yeah, yeah, because I, I only get the like a, like a fairly consistent drip when I'm training, so I'm obviously breathing heavier. And that's another question I want to ask too is, since I've incorporated nasal breathing just into my training, yeah. Um I I am breathing like quite rapidly and a lot. Like my, yes. my my rate is quite high and I know in the book you're saying ideally try to slow it down and if you feel that you it's kind of, you're kind of I know I never feel yeah. I never feel breathless but I'm just like I am breathing like if you were in the gym with me you'd you'd hear me breathing through my nose. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Um yeah. and I know in the it's book It's normal. Yeah, like if you think of if you look at the size of your nose, look at the size of your nostrils compared to the size of the mouth. Mm. So the, the nose is imposing a resistance to breathing. But this is where the science is beginning to catch up. Now, we, we only had limited science. We were talking about something for 20 years, and we didn't have the science to show it. Mm -hmm. But in a way, we did, but we didn't. The papers weren't specific enough. Like, it was first 1995, Morton wrote about it, uh, Lacombe in 2017. But George Dallam, D-A-L-L-A-M, He's, uh, he's an academic from one of the universities in the United States, but he's also a pretty high-level triathlete. And he got 10 recreational athletes. And he said, it's mandatory for you guys to breathe through your nose for the next six months. And after six months of training, after breathing through your nose, when your body has made adaptations, we want to test you. And that's what he did. Now, here's the difference. These individuals, when they were nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, nasal breathing, they had 39 breaths per minute. Mouth breathing was 49. Nasal breathing, their CO2 in the blood was 44 millimeters of mercury pressure. Mouth breathing, it was 40. We'll come back to CO2 in a minute. Mm. The fractured, fraction of expired oxygen was less with nasal breathing, meaning that the cells have utilized oxygen better. Mm. But the big thing was, these individuals attained 100% work rate intensity on a GAXT test with 22% less ventilation. So nasal breathing initially is tough because the air hunger generated is stronger. The reason being is because carbon dioxide is pooling in the blood because it's not able to leave the body so quickly and because breathing is, you know, breathing is reduced. So initially it's tougher. But if the individual keeps on breathing through the nose, this is where adaptations take place. And to achieve a 20% less ventilation is huge because 20% less breathlessness for a given intensity and duration of physical exercise, that's a huge saving economically. 
if you think of it, it applies to pretty much all sports. And I think as well, since we were talking, there's also a paper looking at repeated sprint ability in rugby union players. I don't think we were talking about that back. No, we, we actually did. Um, we did we? Did, okay. Yeah, we, we did sort of the paper by Santos, which I know uh, Warren's yes. one of the authors on. Come here, though. A uh, question on that. Um, I know you said on the podcast with uh, Raf and Lachlan that uh, that was done with professional rugby players. And it does say in the paper, because that paper actually is one of the main papers I'm, I'm using currently now for my dissertation. My basic my dissertation research project is, is essentially a uh, like I don't want to say to copy it up, but the design is similar to because I'm just using that GA. Excellent. But yep. uh, what what team was that with? Because it just says rugby union players. We don't know professional rugby union players, and it says during competitive season. Yeah. Um. So it was during peak season. I think the average age was 21 years of age. Don't know the team. Yeah. It just it actually said high level. It didn't say professional, but they were professional things because. It, and it, at the end of it, they acknowledged the strength and conditioning coaches, and there's a few of them. And I just googled the first fella. And the first fellow uh-huh. like, was, was involved with the English rugby backroom team. So I don't know what team it was, though. Yeah, but they were young, though. They, they seem to be like maybe academy players, or I don't know, or they're 21 or they were young. 21, yeah. 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 But anyway, they were high level in their rugby union. Yeah, but no, that, that study was, uh, yeah, the results were pretty impressive. The results, I think, were amazing because usually when you're working with highly trained individuals, if you can get a, a, a 2 or 3% margin of an improvement, it's huge. Um, to increase repeat, repeated sprintability before exhaustion from nine, I think 9.1 yeah. to 14.7 yeah. in four weeks. And the other thing is, Robbie, that high intensity interval training was dropped in the experimental group. Mm-hmm. And so they repeated with, with Brett Tolley. Now, we've changed the protocol. That's a pretty tough protocol. I was following that protocol with our own athletes and uh, these guys were going blue. When we, we were using um, pulse oximetry, as we would always do it anyway, their blood oxygen saturation was dropping down to as low as 67%. Ooh, that's now, cool. we don't necessarily want to go and blow 60 because there's a risk of the guys passing out. So, so I've changed the protocol. I think, I think um, eight repetitions per set and two sets, one on top of the other, is very tough going. Mm-hmm. So we're doing five reps per set every second day on the first week. And then the second week, we do six reps per set every second day. The third week, we're doing seven reps. And the, the fourth week, we're doing eight reps. Um, I just think it's more manageable, and we're conditioning the players to it as opposed to really pushing them until the, the extremes. Yeah, that, that's exactly what my design is. Two five, two six, two seven, two eight. It initially, <laughs> it initially was going to go six, as in eight sessions and go six, seven, eight, all the way to twelve. But I was like, twelve is just in week four, probably too much. So we'll just do like the first week two fives, and then second week two six, and then third week three sevens, and yeah, or, or two. But seven, you know, two seven. I would, I would also measure their maximum breathlessness test mm. and measure their bowl score. And look at, I think it's really what we need is a paper looking at investigating fatigue. Yeah. Can you show that you're able to de- delay, investigate the relationship between breath hold sprinting and uh, maximum breathlessness test? How many paces? What's the maximum number of paces that you can hold your breath for? Yeah. And using it as a measurement, because it's, it's so much easier if you have a simple measurement, you can go into any team and you can use the measurements and you have some background information in terms of the paper. So, Just for the listeners too, the, the paper that myself and Patrick are talking about, it, it looked at um, repeat sprintability, hypoxia, um, vol- uh, voluntary 
hypoventilation, uh, low lung low volume. volume. So VHL. And essentially what they done was there was 21 players involved, 11 in the experimental, 10 in the control group. And the experimental group utilized this breeding technique where essentially before they, and it, it was basically they done repeated sprints, 40 meter repeat sprints. And what they essentially done was a four-week study where they done two eight, two sets of eight, wasn't it, over the over the sessions? Two sets of eight in the first week, second week, and that the last week was three sets of eight. And there was a departure every thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah, thirty seconds. The exhaustion was when you achieved this less than seventy-five percent of your sprint velocity during an isolated sprint. I thought it was eighty-five percent, though. Maybe it was 85%, okay. Yeah, see, they took a reference velocity. So again, for listeners, that would be, they took their maximum velocity over 40 meters and they said if you fell below a threshold, of, I'm really sure it was 85% of the velocity that they told you to stop. And the test was a repeat sprint to fatigue. And yeah. both, both groups got a nine on, on the pre-test. And then the yeah. post, on the post-test, the experimental group went from nine to 15 or almost yeah. 15. 14.7, yeah. Yeah, and then the non the control group, which just went from 9 to 10, so a non-significant non, yeah. um, finding. So yeah. the, the, the hypoxic group uh, significantly improved. Like they added an additional six um, reps to the, to the repeated sprint. Uh, in, yeah. In yeah, proportionally, it's, a, it's an amazing result. Within four weeks. And actually, four it, weeks, actually yeah. it actually said in the paper that only some of the subjects completed seven sessions. So like that was even within seven, not even eight for some of the subjects. Because wow. they were saying they had to at least uh, complete seven to be, you know, to be included within the statistical analysis. Yeah, no, yeah. it was a very, very good paper, interesting paper, Ari. Something that, Patrick, that really... Uh, struck me as I read the book and it was a re- the, the oxygen advantage and it was a real kind of like well duh kind of thing when I read it as in like that's so logical was this concept of like like oxygen and like mm-hmm. you know so like water water can be a medicine it can be a poison food yeah medicine or a poison and then your whole thing is but no one's ever said oxygen it can yeah. be yeah. medicine or it can be poison and like this sort of idea that most people, because again, we're mouth breeders and we're, we're over breeding. Most of us are essentially quote unquote eating too much oxygen. And, yeah. and if you think about like oxidative, oxidative stress and excessive, you know, oxidization within the body and what that can do at a cellular level, chronic mouth breeding and stressful breeding is essentially aging us quicker. Like we're actually biologically aging faster as a species because of our over breeding. So can you just touch on that too, that, this is another reason why we want to start to take back our control of nasal breathing to, you know, bring down the respiration rate, bring in a better quality of oxygen. And actually, instead of having too little oxygen and too much oxygen, it's Goldilocks. We're getting just enough. And we're, we're on that perfect sort of balance in the seesaw of, you know, we're taking in just enough oxygen to optimize our performance and our longevity. And not so much that we're not eating so much that actually it's causing detriments to our cellular metabolism. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Robbie. It's interesting because how many times have we heard oxygen is good and carbon dioxide is the waste gas to get rid of it? And it's, we have to bear in mind that, yeah, the oxygen that we take into our lungs that's passed into the blood, most of it is picked up by hemoglobin, which is a protein within the red blood cell. And hemoglobin releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide. So if we are breathing too hard we don't increase the, the saturation of the blood with oxygen because it's already fully, almost fully saturated with normal breathing. And you can easily show, prove this with pulse oximetry. Have people wear a little finger device with a red light in it and it's picking up on how fully loaded is the hemoglobin with oxygen. 
And you'll see during normal breathing, your, your SpO2, which is the saturation of your hemoglobin with oxygen, that it's going to be between 95 and 99%. And if you start breathing hard, you're not going to increase this. Now, you do increase the PO2 in the blood, but that's reflecting the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood, which is a small amount. However, the hard breathing is getting rid of too much CO2, and the loss of carbon dioxide is causing blood vessels to constrict, and it's also causing the bond between oxygen and the oxygen and the red blood cells to increase. So that's based on the Bohr effect. So I remember going for an exam and I was anxious about it. And in an effort to calm down, I started taking these full big breaths because that's why what I was hearing all around me at the time, you know, when I didn't know much about breathing. And I went into the exam hall dizzy. So anybody who feels that you're going to get more oxygen into your body by breathing hard, that's not the way it happens. You need a certain amount of air, not too much, not too little. And this is looking at the biochemistry of breathing, that carbon dioxide plays a fundamental role in, in body health. It plays a number of functions. One is your blood vessels, your blood circulation is smooth muscle is embedded throughout the blood vessels. And it's carbon dioxide that will help open up your blood vessels or cause them to constrict. People with cold hands, invariably that is people who are over breathing. They are breathing too hard. They are taking too much air into their lungs. They're removing too much CO2 from the blood because of course you lose CO2 from the blood through the lungs. So if you're breathing hard, you're first of all getting rid of too much CO2, carbon dioxide from the lungs. This in turn is reducing it in the blood and blood circulation, your blood vessels constrict. So you have 70,000 miles of blood vessels in an average adult. Blood circulation is affected by breathing. The delivery of oxygen from the blood to the cells is affected by breathing. And the harder you breathe, less oxygen gets delivered. The pH of the blood is also affected by breathing. 7.365 is normal blood pH. If we're too acidic to 7, if we're too acidic to 6.8, we can die. And if we're too alkaline to 7.8, we can die. So just as much, just as we need oxygen, we also need carbon dioxide. So what's good breathing? Good breathing is in and out through the nose. That's looking at the biochemistry of breathing with a normal minute ventilation. Nasal breathing is activating the diaphragm. So you can't actively breathe using your diaphragm unless you're breathing through the nose. So people talk about diaphragmatic breathing, but they never talk about nasal breathing. You cannot, your, your mouth is directly linked with the upper chest and your nose is directly linked with the diaphragm. Diaphragm breathers are naturally slower breathers than mouth breathing. And your diaphragm is also connected with the emotions and the diaphragm breathing muscle is also necessary for generation of intra-abdominal pressure, for spinal stabilization, for postural control, for movement. So functional movement and functional breathing go together. If breathing is off, movement is off. And if movement is off, the athlete has an increased risk of injury. So we really need to start looking at breathing from, the, as I said at the very start, a number of dimensions, biochemistry, light, breathing light. You know, we shouldn't be breathing hard. It's a very bad sign if you see a guy and he's running out of air, he's gassing out too soon, 
and it's your breathing during rest which will determine the breathing during physical exercise and which will determine your breathing during sleep. Like even if you think of a snorer, like, you know, we could say, well, snoring is because the airway is too small. And that's normally the explanation. The airway is compromised and as a result, it generates turbulence. But if an engineer was looking at the airway, the airway is a pipe. And no engineer is going to look at a pipe without looking at flow. You can't consider the diameter of a pipe without considering what's going through this pipe. And flow is breathing. So if you have an individual who is breathing hard, they've got a high flow going through the airway. This in turn is increasing turbulence in the airway. This increases the negative pressure inside the airway. And it also increases snoring and the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. Now, doctors will say that generally the problem is with the airway. But I'm saying, no, the problem is not just the airway. The problem is also with flow. And if we look at two engineering terms, one is the Bernoulli principle, and that relates to flow. And that is the flow velocity increases, so does the negative pressure. And the Venturi effect relates to the size of the pipe. As the pipe gets more narrow, so does the negative pressure inside in the pipe. So what I want to do is, people to breathe through their nose with their tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, with their mandible forward to maximize the airway, to open up the space, but also to bring down flow. And uh, try and snore when you really breathe slowly, and you'll see it's quite difficult. That to make a sound of a snore, you have to constrict the throat, and you have to increase the velocity. So a snore is like this. So I'm constricting the throat, and I'm increasing the velocity. Whereas if I close my mouth, and if I really breathe slowly through my nose, it's very difficult to snore. So that's why we need to look at, sleep medicine needs to look at flow, because flow is generating turbulence. Big time, big time, yeah. Um, I have friends, and they have issues with getting boners. And nitric oxide apparently is a big player in this. So nitric, nitric okay. oxide is a player, but we don't know. And here, if here's a few things that I've learned since I've written the book, it's amazing how things change. Um, how long does nitric oxide last for? That's one thing I don't know. Some papers say up to 30 seconds, another paper saying up to five seconds. Yeah, now if nitric oxide from the nasal cavity by the time it gets into the lungs and passes into the blood, if it lasts for 30 seconds, then it's staying in circulation. But then other papers since 2001 are saying that the nitric oxide is scavenged when it gets into the, red, into the blood. So we do know that mouth breeders are more at risk of erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And it may be because of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. Okay. So it's not a good sign if a man isn't waking up at a boner in the morning. He should wake up with his mouth closed, his tongue on the roof of the mouth, and he should wake up with a boner. And that's normal because it's an indicative of functioning, normal functioning of the body of the man. But if his sleep is off, sleep apnea could be, could be a factor there. So I would say improve sleep quality and see then does it make a difference and maybe get a nice looking woman as well and that might help too. <laughs> so another question I have here for you that we spoke about over email, I was very much intrigued about the adaptations to the spleen and EPO that can be induced yeah. through some of the breeding techniques. So do you just want to touch on that? Yeah, of course. 
So your spleen is your blood bank and it contains 8% of the red blood cells. And the volume of blood inside the spleen is 200 to 300 mil. It's very rich blood. 80% is hematocrit, which is very high proportion of oxygen carrying capacity. And if you do five strong breath holds, the spleen will contract even within the first breath hold and it reaches its maximum about the fourth or fifth breath hold. Why is that, Patrick? We don't know. It just seems that there's a lot of diminishing returns that it seems to, you know, and the contraction doesn't, like, I think it's about 20% of the contraction of the spleen with that. And here's another thing. How long does that blood last in circulation for? Mm. Some papers are saying up to 60 minutes and other papers are saying for 10 minutes. Now, if you can imagine an athlete doing five strong breath holds just before an event, as that's releasing red cells into circulation, which is increasing oxygen carrying capacity quite significantly. And the other thing is, Robbie, I was starting to do it with presentations. You know, if I was going out to a large group of people, I want to be focused. I want to be in the present moment. I want to be calm, but I want to be alert. So there's a lot of things going on there. And I would always spend about a half an hour slowing down my breathing, bringing my attention inwards and conserving my energy and taking myself into the present moment because then I get into a flow, but I'd be too relaxed. So always before an event, I do about a half an hour of slow breathing, but then I do five strong breath holds because strong breath holds will increase blood flow to the brain and it'll generate alertness. So even from a mental point of view, um, doing a strong breath hold, doing a few of them as part of a warm-up should be, should be encouraged. I think it's very, very important to do and there's benefits from it. So that's from the spleen. So the questions we need to find out are, when you do five strong breath holds and the spleen releases red blood cells into circulation, how long do, does, do, does that additional oxygen carrying capacity remain for? How long does it take for the spleen to reabsorb that? Um, like Matt Richardson, Mid-Sweden University, wrote a PhD thesis exactly on that topic. And his evidence or his conclusion seems to be 10 minutes. But then we have other studies which are showing 60. So there's a huge gap there. So I don't know what the real answer is. EPO. So the kidneys synthesize EPO, the liver to a lesser extent, also when the kidneys go hypoxic. So if you do a strong breath hold, so if you breathe in, breathe out, you hold your nose and you're holding your breath for quite a long time, your cells continue to extract oxygen from the blood during that time, but they synthesize a hormone called erythropoietin and EPO will stimulate the maturation of red blood cells. It takes three to four days for this to happen. It's slow. So the spleen contraction will happen in 30 seconds and the generation of EPO, three to four days. So if you had, say, today is Friday, but if you had a game on Monday, you'd want to be doing breath holding every day this week, including Saturday, because the effect of this, in order to make sure that you've got the maximum effect for, say, Monday, you're, you're bearing in mind that it's not going to happen automatically, that there's three to four days. And five strong breath holds with a 10-minute rest and three sets between. So three sets of five strong breath holds with a 10 minute rest in between each, it generated, it increased EPO by 24%. And that's equivalent to spending six hours at an altitude 
of 1,780 meters. In terms of 1,780 meters, you're, you're into high altitude, just at the verge of high altitude. Um, but six hours, you can achieve that with 15 strong breath holds, uh, three sets of five, 10 minutes rest in between each. I heard you speak about some research. They didn't really know mechanistically why, but there seemed to be some link between uh, a rodent's ability to tolerate higher CO2 and tissue repair in its gastronomias versus a group that yes. wasn't exposed to CO2. So have you found out any more about that or have you, have you looked into that? No, more? but there's other papers showing. If you look at the work of, there's... Um, a researcher from repeat, and I remember listening to a, a lecture of his about to go even more in the United States. And raypeats.com would be the name of the website. Pete. And Pete, Ray Pete. Pete, yeah, Ray, I know Ray Pete. Yeah, he's mad at the progesterone, uh, going to save the world. And he's the one fella that thinks that sugar is actually really, really good for your health. <laughs> so maybe he's been he's dismissed already but i remember talking about people who had injury and he got their their arm or their their arm or leg and he enclosed it in a bag and he pumped in welding co2 welding gas co2 and the injury repair healed so much quicker and that's pretty much what these papers are showing that there's two papers 2017 they damaged the tibialis muscle in, in sprawly rats. And they, I don't know how many rats, 26 of them. And they assigned them to two different groups. In one group, they uh, administered CO2, carbon dioxide, through the skin. In the other group, they didn't. They sacrificed the rats. And the rats who were administered the CO2, their muscle injury repair had healed. Mm. The other rats didn't. There's other people that transmute CO2 that it's coming in through the skin is going to cause a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve so more oxygen gets delivered to that muscle. But here's the thing. You don't have to administer CO2 through the skin to increase CO2 inside the muscle. All you have to do is hold your breath. Because if you hold your breath, CO2 is not able to get out of the blood through the lungs. And because of CO2 is increasing in the blood, it's slowing down the gradient of the release of CO2 from the muscle to the blood. So you are going to be increasing CO2 inside in the muscle compartments. Um, and this might also show that with near-infrared spectroscopy that oxygen saturation is dropping inside in the muscle compartments as well. Because when you have an increase of CO2, it causes a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, mm-hmm. which is going to lower your SpO2. So there's a hypoxic effect because the hemoglobin is releasing oxygen more readily. Um, it could be a very interesting in terms of using breath holding. Could it increase muscle injury repair? So it really, you know, it would be really something that would be tremendous to, to investigate. So, so you broke up there a little bit. So just for the listeners, you said it was transcranial trans, uh, CO2 that the rodents got, the ones that got... Transcutaneous, through the skin. Oh, sorry, transcutaneous, sorry. Yeah, yeah so it was just administered. I think there's... Uh, it was either 
through gas or it could have been a patch. I can't remember. There's a couple of different papers on it, but if any of your, your listeners just put in sprawly rats, carbon dioxide, tibialis muscle, sprawly they'll pull rats. up the papers. Yeah, well, sprawly I'll, rats. I'll, I'll try and have that in the show notes. And just speaking of research, I actually pulled up that Santos paper. So it, it was 85% as the... the yeah, put off great. It's, it's kind of weird how they said they progressed. Them. It says, at first two sessions, subjects performed two sets of 840, two sets of eight. Oh, then the repetitions were progressively increased over the course of the training period. Two repetitions per week on average to reach three sets of eight by the last session. It's a bit of a weird progression, it's, but I get, I get it. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The two sets and of eight. The other thing that's a little bit confusing with that is they have a departure every 30 seconds. Yeah. But that's including the time of the sprint. Whereas when I'm working with my athletes, I tend to get them to sprint. And then when they've, when they've, made the, when they've completed the 40-meter sprint, then yeah. I give them a countdown of 30 seconds. Yeah, same. That's, that's how I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they say here that during the training session, the participants had to perform 40-meter auto sprints with a, give, with, a, with a start given every 30 seconds. Yeah, whereas yeah. Me, me and you would give the 30 seconds after they've completed. Yeah, but there's only a few seconds in the difference anyway. Now... The interesting thing about this is that these athletes are hypoxic and hypercapnic. Mm. They don't recover throughout the whole seven or eight repetitions. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is where, because if you think of it, there's a delay in, in the circulation. Well, the circulation time is about 15 to 16 seconds. So the time for the, the gas in the lungs to manifest on the pulse oximetry, I'm assuming using pulse oximetry. So... It takes about 16 minutes to see the, the blood oxygen saturation drop on the pulse oximetry. And with that, like if there's a departure every 30 seconds, the athletes, some of them haven't fully recovered. They're hypoxic already before they do the next sprint. And CO2, it takes generally about a minute to clear. So, you know, there's also a hypercaptic effect. And as I said, the CO2 increase is also going to contribute to the hypoxic effect. 30 seconds, it's not going to be sufficient in terms of the athletes to recover. So they breathe in through their nose, breathe out through their nose, they hold their breath, they sprint for 40 meters holding the breath on an exhale. At the end of it then, they have a recovery of, it's probably, it's not 30 seconds, but it's probably about 27 seconds. It's not going to take too many seconds to do a 40 meter sprint. Now the 20 seconds recovery about halfway through that, you'll see the blood oxygen saturation dropping. So there's a 16-second delay as the circulation time to see the, the gases, the change of the gas in the lungs and how it's manifesting in the finger. So pulse oximetry. Um, once the individual, okay, so I'll just explain that a little bit again. You take a normal breath in, normal breath out, pinch your nose, sprint holding the breath. The individual resumes breathing after the sprint but it will take about 16 to 20 seconds to see that their blood oxygen is dropping. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen straight away after the sprint. There's always a lag there. So their blood oxygen saturation is dropping probably 16 to 20 seconds. And then after a few seconds, they have to sprint again. They won't have fully recovered. Some of them will be still in slight hypoxia before they sprint again. Mm -hmm. And also they won't have recovered in terms of their normal CO2, that some of them will be in hypercapnia. So the CO2 in the blood will be too high because, of course, they haven't recovered because usually it takes about a minute or so for CO2 to clear from the lungs, from, sorry, CO2 to clear from the blood. Um, so that's where I think it's having the real effect there 
that it's a strong training stimulus because it's hypoxia and hypercapnia added on hypoxia and hypercapnia. Now, when you have hypercapnia, which is high CO2, this is going to cause a right shift of the blood oxygen saturation curve to cause a further lowering of the SpO2 because hemoglobin is going to release oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide. And as hemoglobin releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide, and when that oxygen isn't getting replenished, that's going to cause a further drop to the SpO2. Gotcha, gotcha. But again, isn't, I suppose the, the total adaptation there again will be just through an accumulation of that though, you know, as in like... Yes. So would, 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 if you were running that protocol, how would you... Would you prescribe it the same, or what? What, what change? Or you would? Okay. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Change. I think it's. I think it's manageable. I'd probably keep it the way. I'd have a thirty-second gap the way we're doing it. Yeah. Um. And I'd also. I wouldn't do two sets of eight one after the other, or ten minutes rest in between each. What would you do? I would do one one set every second day, like what they're doing. They were doing two sets on okay. one day yeah. and nothing for the rest of the training for six yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you were saying you were doing a set of five. Was it every other day? Was that we start on the first week doing five? Okay, just one set. One set every second day. One set of five. Okay. Okay. And then on the second week, we're six. doing six. Yeah, gotcha. Six reps, and we build it up. Now you could do you could do five every day, five reps every day. Like if you think we've been teaching kids since two thousand and two, and we were giving them six repetitions, two sets a day. Mm. so you know we can do it it's not like free diving free diving is typically done every second day but in terms of the the, the hypoxic effect will be a lot stronger during free diving now the hypoxic effect during the repeated sprintability it's fairly strong yeah it's uh like once you go below 88 percent spo2 you're in severe hypoxia yeah, we've yeah. seen some of them going down to 67 yeah, and that's really that's you know that's very severe Okay, so just we're wrapping up here, one or two other little things. Um, I've heard you speak about this on our podcast too, and personally myself, I haven't looked into much of Wim's stuff. Uh, yes. I'm well aware of it. But just again, just to give you a platform here, because I know it's a question you're getting you know, a lot. is like, well, you know, your breeding techniques seems to be very different to what Wim recommends. And now, even while I haven't looked in a lot into Wim stuff, and you know, I only I'm aware of your stuff through just listening to your podcast and then your book, obviously, and some other materials I've read. Like what immediately comes to my mind is that's because they're trying. They're, you guys are trying to induce two completely different things. You know, it's like it's. I think people want this like, well, who's right and who's wrong? It's like, well, is Wim not using his more so to actually drive a bit of a psychedelic experience and you know more. Yeah. Whereas, like you're saying, I'm talking here more about like you know cleaning out anxiety in people and kids with asthma, and then also for sports performance. So it's kind of just like you know, it's it's like you know, is it, are we talking about like nutrition for sports performance or health and longevity? Are we talking about exercise for sports performance or health and longevity? Are we talking about breeding for you know uh, a kid yeah, with asthma yeah. and ADHD? Or are we talking about someone trying to you know control their immune system and their mind while they're in freezing cold water like it seems like there's no right or wrong it's just a certain strategy for the the, the given context of the situation so i'll let you just answer that there well it's in terms of there's two two aspects to what i would do when i look at somebody coming in i want to improve their everyday breathing so that it's efficient and optimized that breathing during rest physical exercise during sleep that's very important so that's that's one pillar 
The second pillar is strong breath holding to severe hypoxia and to strong hypercapnia, high CO2. So with the strong breath holding, we're dropping blood oxygen saturation down into about 85% to 80% SpO2, which is severe. We're increasing CO2 to about 55 millimeters of mercury pressure from 40, which is severe hypercapnia. The Wim Hof technique throughout is extreme hypoxia mm. and hypocapnia. So the CO2 never recovers. So the first in the Wim Hof technique, the first 30 breaths is, is lowering a lot of CO2. And then when the individual stops breathing, they do a breath hold post the 30 breaths. Um, their SpO2 drops down to about 80%. And then they breathe in and hold for 10 seconds, which helps to replenish oxygen. And then they breathe hard, 30 breaths. And then they exhale, hold. And they hold their breath for quite a long time because their CO2 levels are depleted. Mm. This causes their SpO2 probably to drop down into the 70s. And then they hyperventilate again. I'm sorry, they breathe in, hold for 10 seconds replenish oxygen, then hyperventilate for 30 breaths, and then do the third cycle of a breath hold. Now their blood oxygen saturation drops down to say 50%. It's the stressor. Yeah. And it's the stressor to force the body to make adaptations. But here is where I'd love to see an investigation. How much of a drop in hypoxia do you need to get a stress? Because do you need, will it be sufficient to drop the SpO2 into severe hypoxia or do you need to go extreme? Yeah. And my take is severe hypoxia should do it. And also bear in mind that it's not ideal to be breathing hard all the time. It's okay to do it as a stressor, but then allow your breathing to recover and also breathe through your nose slow. So it's all about slow, light and deep breathing, slow breathing not having so many breaths per minute, light breathing, slowing down and softening the breath to the point of even a light air hunger, and deep breathing using the diaphragm. And we bring in that slow, light, deep breathing during rest, during running, and during physical exercise. And we also do breath holding. So I think, there's some similar, <clears throat> I think there is some similarities with the Wim Hof technique, just he's a little bit more extreme in terms of the breath holding. Yeah. I I also love how you say Vim. <laughs> you say Vim. Vim, Vim, Vim. Yeah, very good. Um, you spoken previously about jaw development. Um, and yeah. you know, you said like nowadays a lot of us we eat very soft foods and our jaws aren't really getting the mechanical stress that they need, obviously for optimal development. And obviously, this begins in childhood too, and then the importance of breastfeeding. So maybe yeah. just again for listeners it'd be good to get, you know, uh, the information that you've put forth in terms of the importance of breastfeeding. And it's funny, like, I, I love how you worded it too on the podcast. I listen to you, you're like, you know, people, again, they think about breastfeeding. It's kind of like you mentioned at the very start of the podcast about, you know, yoga versus Biteco, you know, that yoga is more like about the, the mechanics, biomechanics. The, the biomechanics of breeding and Biteco is about the biochemistry. And, you know, when you think about breastfeeding, a lot of people automatically just think all oh, about the nourishment and the nutrition. Yeah, and yeah. you were like, well, that's important. There's also a whole like mechanical yeah. impact on the development of the baby's jaw. And then obviously as we, as we grow as kids and into our, into our teenagers, that whole, it's very important, you know, the foods that we, in terms of, you know, actually challenging the jaw to actually chew. Cause I actually, yeah. had, I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine, um, Pat Davidson, who he did a little bit of research and investigation into like the development of the human jaw, like, 
and how that impacted in like on like a development of like the ear and the ear canal and he was kind of looking into like autism spectrum and, and into polyvagal theory with how the jaw developed and kind of and to do with breeding mechanics and all that and he was just saying that again that people's jaws are just so untrained and underdeveloped because he's like if you looked at our ancestors yeah like they shit they used to have to chew through like you know like like they like really have to chew their yeah. food yeah but robbie this is not going back that long ago yeah, um yeah. i was in lithuania and i was working from a dental clinic there and the professor of dentistry she's affiliated with one of the universities she was asked to identify the skulls of a group of individuals who rebelled against the russians back in the 1917 or 1918 Mm. and in true russian style the russians caught them hung them and threw them into an empty hole in the middle of the city unmarked grave the bodies were found about two years ago and the authorities in Lithuania wants to identify them, the individuals. We looked at the skulls. The skulls had tremendous forward growth in the face. Um, this was 100 years ago. And it's amazing the amount of room that they had in the mouth for the tongue. Whereas the modern day face has hardly any room. Now, I was reading a terrible paper uh, last week and the week before death in infants from sudden infant death syndrome mm. and all of these infants were looking at the, the pictures of the, the the baby infants who had died they all had narrow facial narrow jaw structures narrow maxilla and a high upper palate airway totally compromised now could that is that just a coincidence well i don't think so because the author included the photos and related death in infants to poor craniofacial development of the airway. We have to bear in mind that young infants, uh, the soft palate and the epiglottis meet. So the child would have very much difficulty breathing through the mouth. So they have to breathe through the nose, but if their nose is anatomically deficient, they can die then from asphyxiation. So Kevin Boyd is a pediatric dentist in Chicago and he gets young infants and they may be two and three months old, and he develops the jaws of these young infants. So it's not happening in Ireland. Um, nobody is working with babies that young. Most of the time, it's completely overlooked. Mm. I don't think anybody is specifically looking into the mouths of children to see how well have these faces developed. I think your friends, David, um, I can't remember a second name there, but the, the really, I think it's tremendous to see th- there could be some link there with autism. And I would be looking at the link between sleep because I would be looking at the link between the airway, compromised sleep, and, uh, you know, what, what impact is that happening? So, yeah, so where does it come down to, you know, like we're, we've gone are the days that we're, we're eating tough steak as a, as a six-month-old kid. But... One, one woman is Jill Rapley in the United Kingdom, and uh, she has been you know, researching this for many, many years, and she has a protocol that's called a baby-led weaning, and she's got a book by that name. And she talks about how her ancestors used to eat and how the kids used to eat the feed, the food from the adults. Like the, 100 years ago, there was no such thing as baby foods, all mushed up, ready to eat. The kids were eating, the infants were eating, the, the same food as the adults. And they have got a gag reflex that's very forward on the tongue as a protective mechanism that the baby doesn't choke. 
So that's why even though the baby appears to be gagging, it's, it's just that it's more stronger. Their reflex is a lot stronger than it is that of an adult. And that may have been a protective mechanism that the baby was gagging a lot easier so that they wouldn't be choking. Um, also, also too though the the like if you look at um any studies i say studies and actually i've probably never read a study but i've I've read this in books which i know is is very poor um research to be citing but but it just like say any any literature that i have currently read on any um studies into primitive tribes or any observations of primitive tribes the breastfeeding of the kids usually lasts until the kid is like two or three do you know what I mean? So, yes. so yes. you know they were, yeah. they, were still, they were still getting a lot of nourishment from their mothers. So what I mean is that by that by by the time they're two or three, they're also eating solid foods because they've got teeth yes. as well. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's true. And like we can't blame mothers in this. Society is so screwed up because oh, yeah. like forty-year-olds are absolutely up to their neck in mortgages, or either that they're paying high rents. So both both members of the couple have to work. And if they have a child, the mother is compelled to go back to work after a few months because there's a mortgage to be paid. Mm. So, you know, society has really kind of dropped the ball on this one to some extent. Um, you know, like at the same time, okay, so a young infant has a narrow facial structure. This is where we want the dental industry to start waking up. Yeah. You know, don't wait. Like if you look, Google a photo of Prince William and Kate Middleton. And get a smiling photograph of the two of them. Count how many teeth you can see on William when he smiles. You'll see that his jaw is so small for his, his, his mouth. You'll see about six teeth. Look at Kate Middleton. She's got a really wide facial structure and her jaw has been adequately shaped by her tongue. Mm. And when you look at her teeth, you'll count about 10 11 maybe 12 teeth when she smiles she's got a wonderful facial structure she'd have a wonderful airway so william chose well but <laughs> she didn't choose so well come here tell me this did john cabinet ever get back to you no he didn't um so yeah like i suppose breathing is just one of those things that um it's overlooked and people think it's a load of crap but uh, this is where the people who do put it into practice that find a difference, they're going to be game changers because there's an edge here. Not, athlete, not all athletes are doing it. And those athletes who will do it, and you'll see it in your own research, you know, but I would be very interested in correlating both score, maximum breathlessness test with the repeated sprintability because the thing about that is that you could use a simple screening protocol to assess players and also to assess their improvements. Mm -hmm. like, it, like if Conor McGregor is the primary example, looking at somebody's breathing during rest, not when he's fighting, not post-fight, uh, you're looking at fast upper chest breathing. Anytime you see that, I, it's always going through my head, this guy's going to gas out too soon. His breathing during rest is dysfunctional. And uh, he's, not gonna, he's gonna have disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. And yeah, that point has been proven. Tell me this as well. When is it appropriate to breathe through the mouth? And then a second question to that is, what about swimmers? I know you've been asked that question before because swimmers are one athletic population where they have to breathe through their mouth. 
Yeah, like when the intensity gets too much, there's a point at which the intensity gets too much that nasal breathing mightn't necessarily be sustained. Yeah. It's going to affect in a number of function things. One is the size of the nose. Mm. If you have an individual with not wide nasal cavity, wide nasal passages, that individual will be able to sustain nasal breathing quite easy at higher work rates. But Caucasians tend to have narrow facial structures and they will have more limiting in terms of the resistance created by nose breathing. Number two is, how are they breathing? You know, you can increase alveolar, which is the, the amount of air that's reaching into the smaller air sacs by 20% by changing the respiratory rate. Because of every breath that we take, not all of that air that enters the nose or mouth reaches down into the small air sacs. 150 mil of each breath remains in dead space. Now, if you're breathing fast and shallow and breathing many breaths per minute, well, many breaths by 150 is a waste of a lot of air. Whereas if you have slow breathing, now you're breathing a lot less breaths per minute and a lot less breaths per minute by 150 is a lot less waste of energy. So to give you an example, if you were breathing 12 breaths per minute and the tidal volume is a half a liter, that means that the individual during rest is breathing six liters. And of that six liters, 12 breaths by 350, when we subtract dead space, gives you 4.2 liters. So if you breathe 12, 12 breaths into your nose, 4.2 liters gets down into the small air sacs. Now, if we change that 12 breaths to six breaths per minute, and if we increase the tidal volume to a 1,000 a mil, which is one liter, we're still taking six liters of air per minute into the body. But the amount of air that gets down into the small air sacs is six, six breaths multiplied by 1,000 minus dead space, which is 150, gives us alveolar ventilation of 5.1 liters. Here we've increased ventilation of the small air sacs by 20% just by changing the respiratory rate. So if somebody is going for a run with their mouth closed, don't breathe fast and shallow, but breathe slow and deep. Take fuller breaths, but less of them, because breath for by breath, minute by minute, you'll increase your alveolar ventilation. So the other thing is, how long is the person nasal breathing for? You know, if, you, if you're doing all of your physical exercise with your mouth closed, all recreational athletes can have enough training effect by switching to nasal breathing. Mm. Um, and elite athletes, of course, yeah, switch some of your time mouth breathing and some nasal breathing that's fine, but have a high bolt score. And the higher your bolt score, which is giving you feedback of the degree of breathlessness for a given intensity and duration of exercise, you're more efficient. So for recreational athletes, I would encourage them, breathe through your nose all the time. Breathe slow and deep. Nasal breathing increases the pressure of oxygen in the blood by 10%, increases CO2 in the blood, increases the oxygen delivery to the cells. You're harnessing nasal nitric oxide, you're protecting your airways. It just makes more sense. So I'm going to, now I'm talking about more about the stupidity of mouth breathing during physical exercise. Because when you look at the benefits of nose breathing for recreational athletes, it doesn't make sense for them to be mouth breathing because mouth breathing is fast and shallow breathing. It reduces oxygen uptake, it reduces oxygen delivery, and it traumatizes the airways. 
And then with swimmers, what would your reply be there? Because obviously, I think to... swimmers inevitably are going to be mouth breathing because if the water is on the face, mm. and if you breathe in through your nose, you're going to be carrying that water into your into your nose, so it will be uncomfortable. But I really think it would be important for swimmers not to take so many breaths um, per stroke. Per stroke, you know, have yeah. more strokes per breath. So maybe have five strokes per one breath or seven strokes per one breath. And that's going to improve propulsion because you're not losing momentum every time you take a breath going across the pool. And again, it's going to translate into what's their bolt score and what's their maximum breathlessness test, you know, because ultimately that's about breathing efficiency um, and we can improve on that. Have you noticed since since you've, and I suppose, I mean, you've been incorporating nasal breathing into your lifestyle now for over two decades, but have you, since that, because this is just something that came to my mind, have you noticed an increase in immunity uh, within yourself? And then maybe maybe more so have you seen it with the clients that you work with? Because my thought is, too, that, like, I was even just in the gym there yesterday, and one of my friends is in there, and he, he definitely has rhinitis. He's always blocked up to hell. And he yes. came in yesterday, and he was coughing and spluttering. Yeah. And he, his name's Dahi, and I was like, Jesus, Dahi, man, you are dying today. Like, and like, I was just thinking, to, like, all I kept saying to my head was just keep breathing through your nose. And why I kept saying that was like, like, I was just thinking to myself, if I had my, my gob open here, gob for the international listeners is my mouth, if I had my mouth open there, and I'd be inhaling all that crap he's putting into yeah, the air yeah. around me. And like, I, I had this kind of thought in my head that, you know, I feel like I'm protected when I breathe through my nose, because we know that the nose filters and humidifies yeah. and cleanses the air. Yeah. So yeah. It, the thought came to me then, like all these flus and things that people get, because you're in an office, and I know there's other factors too, like, you know, that again, like being in an office under artificial light in the winter, when the heating's on in the building and it's actually dark outside, and you've got these blue lights on and your nutrition's yes. crap and you hate life. There's all these other factors too that will, that will play into low immunity. But I'm just thinking too, like if you're a mouth breeder and like people are spluttering all their germs on you, and then you are inhaling it with your big yeah. mouth open. I was just thinking too that, that nasal breathing probably is like a weapon and in terms of you know open your ability to fend off any illness so yeah totally airborne absolutely um and also when you breathe with your nose you breathe less now the only thing is my seattle podcast has also started oh so sure, it's half it? four you're fine yeah uh, it's just a, a message just come in um but yeah nasal breathing nitric oxide sterilizes the incoming air as a natural antibacterial and it also redistributes the blood throughout the lungs. Mm. And this was taught, if you look at Lundberg's work, this was taught to reduce chest infections and tuberculosis. Now, aside from that, breath holding could also be increasing the immune, the improving immune system. So traditionally, we were seeing people who were uh, functioning better with less chest infections, um, always for many, many years, less colds. And even if you have a head cold, Continue doing strong breath holding mm. and you'll be able to shorten the duration of it. Don't switch to mouth breathing because it increases the risk of it going to the chest. Yeah. yeah. So I think definitely, and your, your friend there who came in with his mouth open, his sleep is going to be impacted, his physical exercise, his stress levels. Um, and even, I'll have to wrap it up fairly soon, but there was mm. even a paper showing that nasal breathing had better memory than mouth breathers. Yeah. So yeah. if you look at cognition and breathing through the nose versus breathing through the mouth, that nasal breathing improved memory. So there's so much, so many benefits to nasal breathing. It's innate to the human being, even though we're not doing it. 
And some of your listeners will say, well, I'm breathing through my nose. Well, really, are you? Are you waking up with a moist mouth in the morning or are you waking up with a dry mouth? If you're waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, you've probably spent about six or seven hours breathing through an open mouth and that's going to affect it. Yeah, inhaling all your, your, your bed bugs. Yeah, for I'll, sure. I'll let you go because I know you have this other podcast because I've cool. got... I have a ton of other stuff I want to talk to you about, but I want to get, <laughs> I, I actually do. I want to get back on to talk about the, the flow chapter because the mindfulness chapter in the Ox Advantage was one that really resonated with me. Just when you yeah. see like all the chat, the useless chatter that you have going on in your head. And I'm like, yes. I know I, I can completely resonate with that. And, yeah. and it yeah. just, it yeah. just really, it's something I really do want to talk about and like breathing and anxiety and this, this constant chatter in her head and just basically anxiety states and, you know, yeah. depression and how breath uh, plays into that. But listen, Patrick, Cool. This is absolutely immense. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure I link up everything in the show notes. Just real quick, Patrick, just, just give a quick plug to the listeners. So yeah, your two websites. Yeah, so oxygenadvantage.com is mainly for health. It was mainly for fitness and sports performance and then for health, for anxiety, for panic disorder, for asthma, for sleep. It's butecoclinic.com. Okay, I'll, I'll have all that linked up. And listen, I'll send you an email afterwards just to say thanks for catching up. And Lovely. All Great. That, but I'll let you go now. Great touch. Yeah, Patrick, you're a legend. Take care, bro. All the best. Good luck. All right, bye-bye. Bye, bye-bye.